Bless you. Thank you. You know what? Let's just thank the Lord right now for touching our pastor and bringing him through this crisis, shall we? Lord, we praise you this morning. Thank you for keeping your hand upon our pastor, Lord. Continue to bless and strengthen him. Amen. Well, when he explained what happened uh, and then asked if I would preach, of course, I gladly said yes. Uh, I'm honored to pinch hit for him this morning, and he needs a pinch hitter this morning. But uh, uh, how many knows pastors need rest, too? Amen. And so our prayers are going to continue with him, and it is a privilege and joy to be back. We uh, made it to one service, and then we had to leave on an emergency to Oregon, but uh, it's good to be home. It felt good to walk in this morning, and good to be here. Aren't you thankful that uh, God is good? I talked to a pastor friend of mine in Fresno yesterday, and he said his four-year-old daughter has been going around repeating this phrase, God is bigger than this virus. Four years old. I'd say that's pretty good. <laughs> God is bigger than this virus. God is bigger than anything that's going on in this country right now. And may I say, he has not abdicated his throne. His kingdom is intact. Men. Other kingdoms, empires, and nations have, will fall apart. God's kingdom remains. And the good news is, we're citizens of that kingdom. And that's kind of what I want to speak about this morning. It's a little bit different, but uh, I felt actually, Pastor, I'll make a confession. I felt impressed about this sermon over a week ago while I was in Oregon, not knowing if I was going to preach it. But I knew this is what God wanted me to share. And it's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, very familiar verse. Uh, it starts the Sermon on the Mount, actually. In fact, it's the very first beatitude. And I'm just going to dwell on that one verse, chapter 5, verse 3. And I want to minister on the thought this morning, blessed are the bankrupt. Turn to your neighbor and say, blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are the bankrupt. I learned long time ago, God will never send you away empty unless you come to him full of yourself. Chapter 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As a child of God, we know that we are loved we're redeemed, we're blessed, and we're secure in our Father's arms, aren't we? And I'm thankful for that. This morning, I want to look at the kind of the flip side of the coin as far as being a child of God, but very key. In Matthew chapter 5 through verse 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, how to live in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
In fact, when you read chapters 5 through 7 carefully, and I would recommend it sometime, maybe sit down if you have time, read it through three times in three different translations, let it soak into your spirit, and let me tell you, it is a challenging read. Amen? <laughs> Try it. Jesus introduced this sermon, a sermon that was different, radical, and even counterculture. The Sermon on the Mount revealed not only what he was all about, but it was where he was coming from and leading us to say Jesus did not fit their religious traditions or expectations. How many know that? They did not accept him even his ministry being accompanied by miracles. After following Jesus through the Gospels, sometimes I wonder how many of us are steeped in religious tradition today would actually accept him if we were living then. No, throughout this chapter, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly said, You have heard, but I say. He goes on to say in chapter 6, When you pray, don't pray like they do. When you give, don't give like they do. When you fast, don't fast like they do. Not all our religious traditions are blessed of God. Thus, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with what is known, and we all know, as the Beatitudes. Say that with me. Beatitudes. Do you want happiness? Jesus points the way. Do you want fulfillment? Jesus points the way. Do you want prosperity? Jesus points the way. The world looks at the words of Jesus and says, you've got to be kidding. Because what Jesus announces, what Jesus proclaims, is not the formula of what the world is putting forth. How many knows that what heaven values, earth does not value? And what earth values, heaven does not value. Amen? Our standards and our values of the kingdom are not the same as the world. So the Sermon on the Mount represents new kingdom principles. It's how those who are truly Christians, citizens of his kingdom, live in this world. We used to sing a song years ago growing up, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. How many know that? Aren't you thankful looking at today's world, this ain't it? Yes. Glory. Yes. Our world may be falling apart, but I got news. The kingdom is coming in reality. Though the day may be darkening for the citizens of the kingdom of God, it's getting brighter and brighter with every day that passes. So what Jesus talks about is not what the world accepts, but that's fine with me. I don't need what the world has to offer. I want what Jesus has to offer, and what Jesus has to offer is beyond anything you and I can accumulate here. Glory. So we can rise above this. Now, let me say this. Citizens of the kingdom, how do we live in this present world? Note, just real quickly, five things. These are not my points. I'm going to move through them quickly. Number one, all Christians are to be like this. 
Number two, all Christians are to manifest these kingdom traits. Number three, no Christian can live this lifestyle naturally. It is accomplished by a new birth. You must be born again and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Number four, Christians are to live differently than non-Christians. We imitate Christ and not the world. Number five, all Christians are not of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom. Therefore, in this world, what are we? We are ambassadors of that kingdom. Glory. We have been sent by Jesus himself to be ambassadors in this foreign land. We don't tend to think of our country as being a foreign land. But let me tell you, friend, when it comes to eternity, it's a foreign land and we're ambassadors. Glory. So I'm going to look at three things in verse 3. True happiness, true humility, and true hope. So let's look at number one, true happiness. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed. The word blessed is the word makarios, and it means happy, fortunate, prosperous. In fact, this word was used to describe the life of the Greek gods. The ancients believed that the road to true happiness was through the gaining of knowledge. But one problem, that left the ignorant and uneducated out. This meant then that they did not have a concept of sin. And therefore, since they didn't have a concept of sin, they did not feel a need for a savior. That's why the gospel was foolishness to them. Their happiness was temporary. Their happiness was fleeting. Their happiness was superficial. The description of blessed is all of this blessedness that Jesus repeats in the Beatitudes is spiritual. It means joy for all those concerned. It is an inner joy, catch this, that is untouched by external circumstances and what's going on in our world. It does not cancel the blessedness and the joy we have in Jesus. Well, the duration of this blessedness, the blessed state of being, is not just reserved for the future. Well, I know I'm going to be blessed in the by and by. No, you're blessed now. You are blessed of God now. The blessed state of being is to be experienced now in the kingdom of God, even in this troubled world. It does not cancel the peace and joy and strength of God. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In every translation, the word are is italicized, which means the editors added it much later. So when you read it then, Jesus is making an emphatic statement, which is blessed the poor in spirit. Blessed those that mourn. Blessed the meek. The emphasis is on the now, not later, not in the past, but in the present moment. Blessed 
the poor in spirit. Bless those who mourn. It's a now experience. Yes, we have a great future ahead of us, but I don't live in the future. I don't live in the past. I live in the glorious now of Jesus Christ. God is omnipresent, not only in space, but he is omnipresent in time. There is no past or future with God. It's all as the present. And you and I live in his kingdom. Glory. So blessed now. We need to understand that the kingdom is both realized in Christ and yet future when he returns and sets up his earthly kingdom. Secondly, the idea of true humility. He said, the poor in spirit. The idea of poor in spirit. And first beatitude, I believe, is the key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There is a definite order in which Jesus is presenting this sermon. May I say, even the order of his words are inspired. How many knows the Bible is the inspired word of God? God breathed. That also includes even the order of his word and his presentation of the word is inspired of God. So here, poor in spirit, the first beatitude is the key to all that follows. There is a definite order in what Jesus is presenting here. A spiritual, logical sequence, a divine order. Even the order isn't haphazard. The term poor in spirit means beggingly poor. It comes from a root word actually meaning to crouch, to cringe or crawl, such as one begging for alms in the street. Now stay with this, because I said this is kind of the flip side of the coin of being a child of God. We usually don't think of this when we think of being a child of God, but stay with me. It is the idea of utter destitution. The Hebrew background of this word comes in four stages. Poor, impoverished, because being poor means you have no influence, no power, no prestige or help. It is also the idea of because of this lack of influence and prestige, therefore you're downtrodden, you're outcast, you're oppressed by others. Therefore, such a person with no earthly resources places their complete trust in God. When I was in Israel back in 2005, we were walking the streets of Jerusalem. I encountered such a beggar. He was an elderly gentleman with a heavy robe on, and he had his can. He could not stand up straight. But when I see this phrase, poor in spirit, I have an image I now see of what that word actually means. And this old man, as Artur was walking by, he could hardly look up. And the only word he kept repeating, probably the only English word he knew was, Allo, Allo, and he was shaking. And so some of us, you know, we place money in his cup and such, but that is the picture of what Jesus is presenting here as poor in spirit. 
Now, the implications of this term, the fact that this is the very first beatitude, and I don't want you to take away from the meaning of poor in spirit. Now, we're probably wondering, what does that have to do with being a Christian? Stay with me. We're going to tie it together. But it's the idea that this is the first beatitude means all the others flow from it because, here it is, it represents our approach to God. Let me say that again. It represents our approach to God. It is not an outward, physical, or mental destitution, but a spiritual, inward destitution. How can you and I approach an all-powerful, almighty, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God other than as a beggar? This is where it begins. Here is the idea of not man facing man, but man facing God. And if one ever feels anything but utter destitution in the presence of God, then I doubt if you will face God. We are impoverished, and God has everything we need. Jesus, therefore, is claiming that happy is the man whose approach to God is with such an attitude of destitution in spirit. These are the ones who realize they are spiritually and morally bankrupt without the grace of God. Why? They are blessed because they know and know alone that God is their ultimate source. It's not what I can do. It's not what I have earned. It's not what I have built. One king in the Bible stood on his porch one night and looked at all of his kingdom and said, look at this great kingdom I have built. And within minutes, the voice of God came and took it from him for seven years to let him know that God is sovereign and God is the source. And after that seven-year stint in the wilderness living as an animal, Nebuchadnezzar was restored to his kingdom, and he declared the greatness of God in his kingdom. Let me tell you, friend, God is where emperors and kings and presidents will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess, including Satan himself. What other kind of approach will I have before God? This is why Jesus begins his sermon. This is the first step in the Christian life journey. And it's one that stays with us in our approach to God. They are those who are desperate. They know that they will find the resources of the kingdom of heaven in the hands of God. Therefore, those who are in spirit, poor in spirit, will become rich in God. Their riches consist not in the world's wealth, but rich in grace, mercy, pardon, adoption, and sanctification. The greatest virtue here that Jesus is underscoring, and it's a virtue that was not considered a strength in those ancient days. In fact, it was considered a weakness, and that is the virtue of humility. 
It is the greatest of virtues because how can you not look at Jesus who was fully man and fully God and see this virtue exhibited in his life and ministry? This humility does not mean nervous, timidity, lack of courage, or self-effacing, but it is this, the complete absence of pride, self-assurance, and self-reliance. It is a consciousness that we are nothing in God's presence. One commentator said this, These wretched beggars bring absolutely nothing to God but their complete emptiness and need and stoop in the dust for pure grace and mercy alone. This is the condition and attitude of true repentance preached by the Baptists and by Jesus as a basic for all who would come to God and His kingdom. I love the old hymn that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. For I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Such beggars stoop before God, and they are blessed. Why? For theirs, hear this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> all of a sudden, the bank accounts, the possessions, the cars, the RVs, all of it, vacation spots, vacation homes, pale in the vision of ours is the kingdom of heaven. Glory. Last of all, true hope. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at this. Here, the realized kingdom of heaven. When one thinks of a kingdom, what do we think of? Well, of course, a king, a castle, possibly a standing army, and a dominion, of course. But you know, whenever Jesus talked about his kingdom, he never used any of this imagery. Jesus didn't use any of this earthly imagery to describe his kingdom. Interesting, isn't it? I always think of that day he was crucified when he was standing there with Pilate after being beaten and the crown of thorns crushed down on his forehead. And here he was beaten and bloody, standing there in front of the Roman governor. Rome, imperial Rome, the great world power at its time. And Jesus looks at Rome by looking at Pilate and looks in his face and says, you have no authority unless it has been given to you, announcing to Rome there's a greater power here in kingdom than the imperial power of Rome. And I'm it. Glory. That's who we're citizens of. We're citizens of that kingdom. Glory for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This destitution in spirit causes the beggarly soul to place their complete trust in God. And you know what? That's what God wants from us. He wants us to get to the place that we're not leaning on our own things. 
but to acknowledge that God is the source of all things in our life. Amen. As a result of their complete trust in God, the natural result is when you truly trust God, guess what you do if you truly trust Him? You will obey Him. We're not going to question or argue with Him, but simply obey Him. And as a result of our obedience, there is an increase of power and competence, and we will experience the power of God in our lives to rise above the things that this life throws at us. Jesus places a premium on doing the will of the Father. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, while while he was preaching, he was inside the house. The crowds had surrounded the house, had filled the house, surrounded the house, had spilled off into the porch and into the yard. And some of the people came to Jesus while he was teaching to the crowd and said, Lord, uh, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. Yes, wanting to talk to him, really wanting to take him home. And Jesus looked at him and said, well, I, I kind of picture Pastor Josh a sweeping of his arm. These are my brothers and sisters. Now, to me, that was a paradigm shift, a major statement by Jesus in the New Testament. Because Israel was known as lineage of the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, blood-related, chosen people. Jesus, by that announcement, is saying it's no longer lineage. These, those who do the will of my Father, are my brothers and sisters. He is saying from this point the kingdom has arrived, and it's not a matter of blood. It's not a matter of lineage. It's a matter of those who do the will of my Father are the new family, are the new citizens, are the new chosen glory so we are citizens of that kingdom chosen by God doing the will of the father we walk live and breathe in this corrupt world but we truly and ultimately live walk and breathe in the kingdom of God this is all about life in the kingdom. You are citizens. Yes, of the United States of America, but even more importantly than the United States of America, we are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. We're simply, keep this, in, we are simply ambassadors here. So let me conclude with this. The way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Very simple, very profound. Read the Bible. You may think that's an obvious principle, but again, George Barner researched. I forget the percentage right now, but the percentage is woefully low on how many Christians read the Bible and they wonder why they're struggling. What was that? 10% of Christians read the Bible on a regular basis. 
if I'm a citizen of his kingdom, I think I need to know about his kingdom. If I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ in this world, a citizen of his kingdom, I probably ought to read directions on how to be an ambassador. If I'm struggling with the cares and the pressures and the trouble and the chaos of this life and world, maybe I better read the book and find out what I'm really a part of and how great God really is rather than hearsay. Get it for myself. Amen. So read the book. Look at Jesus Christ, follow him in the Gospels, and be struck with how we are to live. The more we look like him, and the more we look at him, the more helpless we shall feel, but the more we will become poor in spirit and entrust our lives completely to God, because I am incapable. Wow. I think of that scripture in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat, the Jehoshaphat jitters, surrounded by five nations. The report comes into the king. What does he do? He immediately calls the people to fasting and prayer. And I love the scene in chapters 12 and 13, uh, verses 12 and 13 of 2 Chronicles 20. You have all of Judah standing there. Whole families holding hands as they look to God and confess. And you talk about positive confession. They made positive confession. Lord, we don't know what to do. It's positive confession. What else are you going to confess in the face of an omniscient God who's all-knowing? I'll say, I don't know what to do. Lord, we have no strength. We are outnumbered. What greater positive confession to make to an omnipotent, all-powerful God? God responded by saying, I've got this. The battle isn't yours, it's mine. You just do what I say. Strike up the choir, strike up the army, have the choir take the lead and go out singing praises. I'll take care of the battle. And when it was over with, all they did was collect the spoil. Glory! what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. There is nothing impossible with God. You've heard it again and again, but we need to remind ourselves it's him and him alone. Glory. Our complete trust will be in him and we will truly experience the realization of the kingdom. The more we look at him and keep looking at him, the more helpless we shall feel, and yet the more we will become poor in spirit in the midst of this sin-cursed, troubled world. Hopefully the world around us will notice the difference. What's with you? Isn't that what God wants? Attraction? But when we're just as desperate, upset, fearful, questioning, they see no difference, what will attract them to this kingdom? Remember, we are ambassadors. This is the first step in our journey of faith in our approach to God, but it is our continuous attitude of heart before him. All else in our Christian life experience 
will fall into place with this first step. Those of you who came forward this morning to renew your life to Jesus Christ, this is your first step before God. And what great news that you serve such a great God who loves you beyond your comprehension or imagination. He's got you right where he wants you. Heavenly Father, thank you. For your precious word, your good word, thank you, Lord, for the moving of your Holy Spirit and what you have accomplished this day in your house. Lord, again, we ask in these troubled times, Lord, it's times like this that we must remind ourselves of who we are and who you are. That, God, you have everything under control. And we are squarely in your hands. And we are safe and secure. We come to you, Lord, in trust and obedience. And may we be ambassadors during these darkened times that will be the light of the world, which Jesus called us, that we may attract others to the kingdom in these days. Lord, you are doing something in our world. God, you are not only doing something to the world, but you're doing something to the church and transforming her to what you have called her to be. And sometimes that takes shaking things. So Lord, there's a great shaking going on. Consequence is going to be the glory of God in ways like we've never seen and experienced in our lives. So rather than despair and distress, we rejoice and we say, yes, Lord. Have your way. Have your way, Lord. Stand with me this morning. We've had an altar service already this morning, and God has moved in a special way. But I, what I want us to do right now, before I turn it back to Pastor, I want us to lift our hands one more time. And I want us to praise and thank God for the God who He is. That we serve such a great God. We have no need to fear or despair. Lord, we come to You completely impoverished Lord you fill all our emptiness all our needs are provided Lord we thank you this morning we praise you God you care for us and Lord we can cast all our care upon you for you care for us we thank you, Father, in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Come on, give the Lord a good hand clap.